If you enjoy listening to this podcast, we ask you to consider supporting it by making a one-time or reoccurring donation. Visit Mayflower's website at www.mayflowerucc.org and click on the Donate tab in the menu. Donations made to Mayflower's Communications Fund are tax-deductible and help ensure that this podcast is available. Thank you for your support. The sermon you are about to hear was preached at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City by the Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at one of America's premier liberal Protestant pulpits. At Mayflower, we are an open and affirming peace and justice church where we believe religion should be biblically responsible, intellectually honest, emotionally satisfying, and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie. Let us bow our heads together. It seems too big of an ask, Holy One. This was not the plan. We did not expect what happened. We cannot find work that pays the bills. The pain won't go away. The kids are always at each other. We are never understood. The sunlight is hidden by the shadow of our depression. There are too many splitting plates. The tightness in our chest is present even in our dreams. How can we possibly believe what the psalmist said? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The Lord's mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. But of course, the psalmist was probably a lot like us. We do not talk to you quite as much when things are fine, when there's extra money in the bank, when we're feeling hashtag blessed. So perhaps the psalmist was also having a rough go of it when they wrote those lines as a reminder, a hope, a plea, something to get them through the night of their grief. Perhaps they knew that we would need a reminder, a hope, a plea, something to get us through the night of our grief. So help us Holy One, to gather up all of our trust, all of our resolve, all of our grit, and believe. May we know it in our bones that your love never ceases, that your mercies never end, that they are new every morning. And then keep knowing it when we aren't worried about paying the bills. We pray in the name of Jesus our teacher and Lord. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. 
So he went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. And she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from here, him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you, how can you say, who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw the commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha come, which means little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Last week, I confess that I find Jesus annoying. And I would like the record to reflect that no one disagreed with me. <laughs> this week is another example of how Jesus is annoyingly always asking us to step outside, or rather live, outside our comfort zone. This text appears to be one of those annoying examples where Jesus practices what he preaches, and he is in some uncomfortable spots in this passage, from being in the large crowd, people pressing against him, to the, to the request from someone with power and authority, to being touched by the woman with 12-year hemorrhage, to going to the house where death had already been proclaimed. It starts with Jairus. His status as a leader of the synagogue marks him out as a wealthy and influential member of the community. We might assume that it would be easy or even a given that Jesus would respond positively to Jairus' request. Most of us know that one does not say no to certain people especially when certain people have authority over us when they say jump, we say how high. But this situation is a bit more complex. 
we must remember that the last healing Jesus did in a synagogue resulted in a plot against him. Again, he entered the synagogue, we read in the third chapter of Mark, and there was a man there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. And we hear the narrator say, he indeed did heal on the Sabbath. And the text says the Pharisees went out and immediately conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So we can imagine that Jesus might hesitate to do anything at all for the daughter of someone who belonged to the group that was out to get him. But Jesus does not let the past make him cynical. He does not punish children for the sins of their fathers. He is not stingy with the resources that can help including himself. The story tells us that instead of sending thoughts and prayers, he goes to the epicenter of the pain, which was a risk in a multitude of ways. First, because no one was really sure what made that girl sick. And then, when he arrived at the house, instead of turning around at the front door when everyone else said she was no longer sick but dead, Jesus keeps walking and enters a stagnant, grief-filled room, no doubt smelling of sickness and despair. He reaches out and touches the body of a girl already thought dead. Every crowd has a smell to it. Death has its own smell to it. Sometimes we would like to sanitize or avoid both because what we can perceive with our senses can also remind us of where life can hurt. We shrink from the man who smells of his own urine. We avert our eyes from the dirty hand reaching out for change, and we try not to see ourselves in the woman whose only possessions are piled into a grocery cart. We'd prefer to forget that most of us are three months away from being homeless, but never three good months from being in the 1%. While the story of the girl restored would be enough, Jesus takes a page from last week's Women's College World Series and turns a double play in our text. Another healing disrupts the storyline of the girl, this one about a woman with a 12-year hemorrhage who is at the opposite end of the socioeconomic scale from Jairus, the synagogue leader. This woman is so unimportant that her name is left out of the narrative. She, of course, had one, but as a woman in that time, she was also a nobody. Jesus could have gotten away with shouting her down for bothering him, much less just ignoring her. On top of that, she is poor all her money exhausted. She can give Jesus nothing in return for his services. In a Jewish context, her bleeding put her in a state of perpetual impurity, according to Leviticus, and that would have prevented not only her from participating in ritual activities, it would have also made anyone who touched her lay on a bed in which she had slept or sat in a chair she had vacated unclean. It is likely that those 12 years of impurity, besides draining her finances, had also isolated her socially from her friends and relatives. 
In a social context, her appearance in public without male companions may have indicated a shamed status. Her illness placed her outside the religious community and in many ways outside of the human community. The length of her illness and the fact that she had been impoverished by spending all of her resources on illness on doctors who had only made her condition worse underline how easy it would have been for Jesus to avert his eyes and keep walking. But in this passage, Reverend Brittany Ficus Van Rossum writes, we find Jesus in the midst of human life and all its hurting. He is in the press of the crowds with sweaty human bodies and the scent of a woman's blood. Jesus stops and listens to this hurting woman as, as if pain were not shameful, but something we all experience. As we can see, there is a multitude of sermons that could be preached from this text based solely on how Jesus does the right thing because it is the right thing, about giving second chances, about not holding grudges, about not punishing someone for just to prove a point, about inclusivity, about really seeing someone, about doing something for someone with no expectation of anything in return. This is sometimes when it makes very little sense to claim to be a follower of Jesus. I mean, how in the world are we supposed to live up to this? It's too much. The bar is too high. It requires too much humility, too much grace, too much understanding and tender care, too much compassion for us to mirror, to live out ourselves except that it is an occupational hazard for pastors to witness people doing all of that for each other on the regular, showing up in times of grief, sticking around even when the other person isn't their best self, responding with a gentle word, meeting one another halfway, making personal sacrifices for the good of a stranger, and the unbelievably stubborn resolve of people working to make things better in a state that consistently goes zero days without being a national political embarrassment. All of which is to say, I'm not convinced that it is Jesus who is the most difficult example to follow in this story, or even the second most difficult example to follow. The other characters give him a run for his money. When we take a second look at Jairus, we begin to see more than a cardboard cutout character. It was indeed a very brave thing to go to Jesus for help, for reasons related that we named, for it to be reasonable for Jesus to say, no, I won't help you. Jesus being in trouble with the synagogue would have meant that Jairus could have gotten into trouble for associating with him. So he could have sent an emissary to ask Jesus to come and heal his little girl, but he comes himself. It's also true that as a leader of the synagogue, Jairus would have been accustomed to having others ask him for favors. And it can be really hard to ask for help when one is used to giving help. 
So, I mean, maybe this doesn't seem so remarkable that he asked Jesus for help at first glance. Jairus was, after all, desperate to save his daughter. So, of course, Jairus does not worry about what asking Jesus for help will do to his reputation. He's a scared parent. Of course, Jairus doesn't care about potential damage to his reputation or gossip from the neighbors or professional consequences or personal inconvenience. Those things do not matter when it comes to doing what is best for one's child. But that's not always what happens. The best interest of our children gets put on the back burner all the time. Ask any family law attorney in the middle of a child custody fight or look at our inability to muster the will to pass comprehensive gun reform. As the Oklahoma kid governor, Charlotte Anderson, who is also a member of Mayflower, reminded us at the most recent Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense event, kids are dying in Oklahoma, she said. The leading cause of death of children is accidents, car crashes, but the second biggest reason kids die in Oklahoma is because they are shot by guns. Why are you grown-ups letting us kids die? She asked. Why is Oklahoma so bad at taking care of us? Why don't you grown-ups keep kids safe? It should be your number one priority. Indeed, Charlotte, it should be. But we have prioritized things other than the health and well-being of our children. Otherwise, we would have passed comprehensive gun reform, among other things. So yes, Jairus' humility and his commitment to put first things first can be challenging for us. But perhaps more difficult than Jesus' example and more difficult than Jairus' example is the example of the woman who said, this is where it hurts. Jesus usually gets a lot of credit for not recoiling in horror at being touched by a woman who is ritually unclean, but the real MVP is this woman who must overcome social and ritual boundaries to approach and touch Jesus. Somehow, this woman who has suffered chronically for years, who has been invisible to the public eye, who has exhausted her financial resources, she still knows she is worth it. She still knows that she has to tell someone where it hurts. After experiencing 12 years of isolation, judgment, and shame, she decides she can't carry it around anymore. So she reaches out for dignity to be seen. That's some courage right there. We don't answer the question, where does it hurt? For a hundred different reasons, because we are ashamed, we prefer to think of ourselves as strong and independent, we don't need help, we definitely don't wanna come across as needy. We think we are alone in our pain. We are afraid to risk ruining a perfectly good afternoon with tears. As author Laura Tremaine writes, most of us are invested in shoving our hurt into the corners of our souls and not letting it leak out onto our carefully ironed outfits. 
One of the highest values of our culture teaches us that we should pull ourselves up and keep marching. There is laundry to do and war to rage. The thing is, depression does not care about the rent cycle. Grief is never inspired to make the bed. The next flare-up of the chronic illness does not wait until it's a convenient time at work. So we try to soldier on. We quiet our heart's cry for help. We do not reach out. We do not let anyone know we need support or help or someone to lift us up, someone to see us. Perhaps of all the things we are supposed to learn from this text, it's that we've got to tell someone where it hurts. This seems to be when the story itself pivots. Notice that Jesus didn't say, my power has healed you, or thanks to me, you're all better. No, he didn't say that. He said, your faith has made you well. The woman's courage, her trust that speaking her pain would change things, did indeed change things. The lectionary only has us read this story out of the book of Mark, but we find it in two of the other Gospels as well. Interestingly, in Luke's version, after Jesus had turned around, after the woman explained why she touched him and how she was healed, the Greek word for crowd changes to people or community. Through her willingness to say where it hurt in a way that others could hear her, this woman humanizes everyone around her, changing a faceless multitude into a community of human beings. Perhaps you are more recent to this congregation and haven't yet been able to take a seat in one of our Sunday school classes or small groups or book studies. Or maybe that's true for those of you who have been a member since the beginning of time, and you have played it safe by limiting your involvement to 45 minutes in the sanctuary all these years. That is an excellent, excellent way to stay anonymous. But it prevents this congregation from being a community to you. The good news is that in-person Sunday school and small groups start next week, 10 a.m., kids and adults. To be sure, there is some risk in sharing your hurt. All of us have heard someone say something silly like, God won't give you more than you can handle. Indeed, next week we are going to talk about how we help each other, because there are more helpful and less helpful ways to help. But before we can come alongside one another, some of us are going to need to channel the courage of the woman in this Bible story. So I'm asking you this morning, where does it hurt, friends? And when are you going to tell us about it? I hope it's sooner rather than later, because I know how good this crowd is at being community. Amen. 
You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, Senior Minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are currently online only, premiering at 11 a.m. on Mayflower's Facebook page. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.